This is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The U.S. moves its front line from Germany to Turkey and the war against ISIS gets closer. Mullah Omar, the man who invented the Taliban, is dead officially. Or is he? Russians probe Ukraine exercises. Will robots be the death of us? Professor Stephen Hawking says that's the future. And what does a four-star general make of 70 years of five-star broadcasting? This week, NATO held an emergency meeting in Brussels after Turkey asked for help in tackling the instability along its borders with Syria and Iraq. In theory, as Turkey considers it was under attack, it can ask other NATO members for help. But Turkey is not just defending itself, it's now attacking its Kurdish opposition. Well, I'm joined by Shashank Joshi from the Defence and Security Think Tank, the Royal United Services Institute, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Shashank, a, a very complex complicated situation. Is it NATO's problem? Well, yes, it is. And, and they've acknowledged it is because a number of years ago, they, of course, sent Patriot missile batteries to the Turkish border as well. So we're already involved. Um, now, NATO does not have any formal role in coalition operations over Syria or Iraq. Um, so it isn't going to be involved in these discussions as to how the United States and Turkey can establish the safe zone uh, or the humanitarian zone that it's seeking. Um, but I think with the with the growing threat in Turkish cities, uh, Turkey's crackdown on both Islamic State and Kurdish networks, I think they have to be prepared for the possibility. You will see an uptick in violence in southern Turkey particularly. And I think Turkey has legitimate requests of its allies to say we'd like more help, for example, perhaps with surveillance assets, perhaps with uh, border security, perhaps with um, border fencing, censors uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but the real discussions are going to be bilateral and between Washington and Ankara rather than between uh, NATO and Ankara. Indeed, and so far, Turkey has agreed for the Americans to use its Inchilic air, air base to launch attacks on ISIS, mm. a real game-changer. Well, it's not a game. Ch I don't think it's a game changer. I, I think that the problem in Syria is it'll help, right? It'll cut the flight times down from the Gulf bases. It means the pilots can spend more time on station above ISIS targets in northern Syria. It's easier to rescue planes if they go down if you have air bases in Turkey. Uh, but the problem in Syria is not a lack of planes or a lack of bombs. It's a lack of ground forces, uh, uh, whether that's um, uh, Syrian rebels mm. or anyone else. And this agreement does not fundamentally change that. And in some ways, it represents actually a very complicated fudge because yes uh, the US gets access to Inchilic but on the other hand it also has to enforce mm. this kind of safe zone that will result in all kinds of problems down the line. You mentioned the, a lack of ground troops in Syria and of course uh, the, the, Kurd, the Kurds are, are instrumental in fighting IS. Um, Turkey's position towards Kurdish militants complicates the whole issue. Hugely. And I mean, we've been reading this week about how Turkey's cracked down on militants over a thousand. If you look into the numbers, the majority of these are not ISIS. They are Kurds. They are Kurdish activists. Uh, Turkey's also been bombing um, PKK outposts in northern Iraq uh, and shelling Kurdish villages over the border. And really what's happened here is Turkey realized by refusing to join the coalition, it was pushing the US and the Kurds closer together. Christopher, where does NATO go from here? It's NATO has got to tread, uh, tread a very, very careful position. What it mustn't do is get involved uh, in, for example, what is a, 
uh, an agreement between the United States uh, and, and Turkey, because it, then it gets involved in something which is not its its, its bag in in some ways. The Article Four, which is the which is the article in the in the NATO treaty which says it can go to somebody's defence who is a member state. Uh, it's defence. Once you get involved in the idea that somebody is actually attacking within NATO is actually attacking somebody else, then you get a political dilemma, and that is what NATO has avoided and is going to avoid. And that's why, for example, the Germans who are in Turkey at the moment, providing the uh, the cover with Patriot missiles, they've got to start rethinking and say, look, are we getting into another a, a state of this this pact that we shouldn't be in and maybe even pulling out? Shashank Joshi, do you think that Turkey, Turkish authorities will enter into any kind of agreement as part of the, the fight against IS in the way that it deals with uh, militants like the PKK? Well, um, no, in fact, the opposite. I think they'll try and put more aggressive pressure on the PKK. Um, one of the reasons they want this safe zone is to stop Kurds, uh, the YPG, which is allied to the PKK, uh, linking up with their allies in the northwest and forming a big contiguous block of Tur Kurdish territory. So I think what we'll see is Turkey saying, we'll help you against ISIS, but we need a free hand against the Kurds. And that presents a dilemma if that means the capable ground force in Syria, uh, the Kurds, is being weakened just when you need it most. There's, there's another aspect of this, which is not a decider in any way. It's not part of the so-called game-changing. Um, when you hear, for example, the Iraqi leader, uh, Haider al-Abadi, uh, al saying that, hang on, the, the Turks are attacking Kurds on Iraqi territory, and this is a violation of Iraq. And then you look down the line and you've got the Americans helping the, the Iraqis in different ways to fight IS. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it shows that you can't just look at any one time at one aspect of what is going on or a change such as the 32 people or the consequence of 32 people being bombed in Turkey. And also, I mean, something we haven't mentioned is, is the very position of the, of the Turkish leader, uh, Erdogan, Mr. Erdogan. Uh, you know, where does that sort of that fit into it. It is a complex a complex situation. Questions which I'm sure we won't be able to answer for, for some time to come. Um, elsewhere, the Taliban commander, Mullah Omar, has been dead for at least two years, according to Afghan spy chiefs. Omar has been reported dead many times before, but this time the White House says the claims are credible. Shashant Joshi, um, why has this come out now, two years apparently after his death? Yeah, fundamentally because of peace talks. Uh, the Pakistani government um, has been under, putting the Taliban under intense pressure to talk to the government in Kabul, which of course has a new president, Ashraf Ghani. The process of those talks, um, which began on the 7th of July earlier this month in Pakistan, meant that some people within the Taliban were very unhappy at this decision. Uh, so you had the deputy Mullah Akhtar Mansour, who's now been appointed Mullah Omar's successor, who was pushing for the talks, and his rivals were very unhappy and saying, look, how can you do this? Uh, on what authority do you do this? And he, of course, said, well, Mullah Omar's authority. So they say, well, show us, where is he? And that process had led to more and more awkward questions to the point where effectively someone uh, has leaked the news that, no, we know he's dead. He died two years ago. Um, and I would guess it's probably people who wanted to say, you don't have the authority to push the Taliban into peace talks because the person you're, you're doing it on behalf of is a corpse. Christopher, do you believe that Mullah Omar really is dead? Well, I mean, 
I, I seem to have sort of been conned into re- thinking it might have been four times. Um, and so I'm always suspicious. But I, all the evidence stacks up that he is. And don't forget the importance of this man. Uh, he was the man that I describe it as uh, inventing Taliban. I mean, it's not quite true, but it'll do. Um, his name was everything. Uh, you, you spoke of, um, some people even spoke of him one day being the first sort of Taliban um, prime minister of, of Afghanistan, that it wasn't going to happen. But it was I think that you, sort of, s- you predicted that even. Uh, yes. <laughs> I seem to remember that. No, I I did. I I said that this was the possibility. This man was such an astonishing sort of symbol. Um, He was the man that really gave safe haven to uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm. Uh, He was the guy that had a $10 million fine uh, uh, reward on on his head from from the Americans. So his image was all important to a lot of people and also people within Taliban and outside. I mean, so much so uh, that, I mean, something which perhaps uh, Shashank can sort of sort of explain more, more, more easily, but it was so much so that some Taliban actually defected to ISIS. Now, that is... That is the size of the uh, uh, so of the difficulties within the organisation itself. With this official announcement and presumed acceptance internationally that he is dead, Shashank, where do you think this leaves the Taliban? And in terms of what Christopher was suggesting, might ISIL ben- ISIS benefit from this? Yeah, well, ISIS have already benefited, as he suggested. Uh, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, one of the groups that used to be allied to the Taliban, over the last month, uh, a couple few months or so, realised, well, Mullah Omar's is not there anymore, so why are we sticking around? Let's leave. I think it leaves them in a very vulnerable position. Mullah Omar, you know, the, the former State Department advisor, Vali Nasser, who once described Mullah Omar as the Ho Chi Minh of the war. He was the, the key to the whole thing. Um, without him, you didn't have, you know, not just your political authority, but your spiritual authority. You know, he was Emir al-Mu'minin, commander of the faithful. And I think what it means is that the trend we've seen over the past five years, not a new trend, of factionalization and fragmentation will grow and grow, and we will see the Taliban, you know, d- sort of fall apart into different movements. I think the Islamic State is one group that will benefit from that on the ground, particularly if uh, we the early reports are correct and the new leader of the Taliban, Mullah Mansour, uh, pushes ahead with talks. Um, you will have more disgruntled hardline commanders going their own way. So, so you say push ahead with talks. Where are we at with the talks? A very early stage. We've had one major round in Pakistani town of Murray uh, on 7th of July. There was another round scheduled for Friday, this Friday, um, and that's obviously been called off by the Taliban themselves. Um, but the real hope was this could have led to something because Pakistan was finally putting pressure on their their proxies, their allies, the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Now, there are still divisions. You know, the Taliban has a political office in Qatar which said, we're the only ones authorised and we haven't given permission. And they're still insisting this right now. Now, as of today, um, so we'll still see d- differences. Um, but those talks were really the first serious talks we had seen in many, many years, and they were most important because Pakistan was on board finally. Indeed, amid all of this, the violence hasn't stopped. Reported in Kunduz province, the Taliban seized around 70 villages in Kanabad, this district this week, means more than half the province there is now under Taliban control. Is that something to be concerned about? 
hugely. Of course, we've known the Taliban have their strength in the south and the east, but we're now seeing more and more inroads in other parts of the country, including the north. Um, you know, Kunduz is, is pretty far away from what we'd have once described as their territorial heartland. I think, in a way, what's more worrying for me than the territorial losses, because they can be retaken, is the attrition on Afghan national security forces. Huge, unsustainable rates of casualty and desertion, and I think that's the real long-term problem uh, looking ahead you know, over the next year or so, even after the spring offensive is over. All right, Shashank Joshi, we'll leave it. Uh, just before you go, though, um, as you are from the Royal United Services Institute, a quick question about your new chairman who's been announced this week, William Haig. William, yes. William, well, uh, William uh, welcome addition. Absolutely delighted to have someone of that pedigree. You know, he was a great foreign secretary, uh, really internationally minded. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, we couldn't have asked for someone with a with a you know better figure, more more respect and admiration from so many people in the foreign policy community. Shashank Joshi, thank you for, t- for your time today. Still to come, robot wars. What's the possibility of a Terminator-style conflict? And we look back on 70 years of forces broadcasting in Germany. British troops are taking part in a two-week training exercise in Ukraine. It's being led by the Americans and involves contributions from 13 other, mainly NATO countries. Christopher, what do you know about it? It's two exercises, isn't it? Well, it's two exercises, and don't forget, this is very much in the western part of uh, Ukraine and also the whole Baltic area, therefore it comes involved. I mean, once you've you've got, for example, surveillance operations going on, you see what's going on all around you, and you try and put (coughs) real-time conditions into those exercises. Perfect example at the moment um, that, uh, fortunately for the Royal Air Force, because they like this sort of thing, uh, the Russians have been having a look at it, and so they send aircraft over. And some of them are, you know, transport aircraft. Because the Russians called this a provocation, this ex- these two exercises, didn't they? Well, if you're sitting in the Kremlin, so it is. Hmm. I mean, we call Denied, it... Denied, prov- of course, as a regular thing by those taking part. But we call it a provocation when you get some clapped-out old uh, Russian bomber like a bear or, or a badger coming within about sort of 40 miles of the British coast. And we say, it's outrageous. It's good tabloid stuff, the, though, isn't it, I daily suppose? Daily Mail puts on circulation. <laughs> now, the important thing about this is that people... Have People, uh, these ten Russian aircraft are then, as the jargon has it, escorted away, uh, and this is all so part that, that, of the exercise. So that was RAF typhoons intercepting ten Russian aircraft uh, in a single operation over uh, in a part as part of the Baltic Air Patrol. Yes, because what the Russians would like to see with those aircraft sort of getting close in, they'd like to see the intercept time. Hmm. Could artificially intelligent robots become the weapons of the future? Professor Stephen Hawking has warned they could. He signed an open letter which calls for a ban on offensive autonomous weapons that could kill without the involvement of humans. Well, I'm joined now by Niles Sharkey, Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at the University of Sheffield. Good to speak to you today. Um, First of all, just tell us about the kind of stuff that Stephen Hawking is talking about. Well, I'm not really sure what Stephen Hawking is talking about. He hasn't he hasn't worked in artificial intelligence. He was mainly talking about the advances to his uh, little speakerphone thing. Uh, but the kind of weapons that the letter is about are the sort that I've been discussing at the UN over the last three years. 
Mm. Uh, he's not here to defend himself, of course. But um, <laughs> well, he doesn't need to defend himself against me. I mean, I think I think that he's raised awareness of a very important issue, and there are autonomous weapons systems uh, already being developed. The UK have the Tyrannus made by BAE Systems. There's a fully autonomous intercontinental combat aircraft, still in prototype, uh, but nonetheless, that's what it is. The US have the X-47B, which is similar, has had advanced testing, taking off and landing an aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. There's the Crusher, which is a seven and a half ton trunk truck. There are autonomous submarines being developed by DARPA. Mm -hmm. So and Israel uh, Russia, China, all are in developments at the moment, and that's why we've been working at the CC at the UN over the last three years of, uh, over this issue. And Christopher Lee, um, you'd argue that autonomous weapons without the involvement of humans are already able to be used. Well, they are in, in, in indirectly. Yes. I mean, we we are not in the business. I tell you of GI Joe. <laughs> I mean, much the annoyance of my grandson, who's already got the whole thing lined up. I will tell you. I give you a perfect example. If you go into a destroyer now, a Type Forty Five destroyer. Uh, Royal Navy's latest ship. Uh, there's a guy there called the PWO, the Principal Warfare Officer. Ship goes off um, and it picks up, tracks a missile, for example, that's coming in towards the ship. The system will say, right, it's got too close, we're going to take it out. It's the PWO who says, don't. Mm. It's not him sitting there and saying to a rating, now press the button. The system is that automated. And so that is the, a very simple, and it's been around for sort of 15, 20 years, that's the simplest way I could explain that we are already automated, actually in operational service. So, Professor Sharkey, are we seeing already the third revolution in warfare after gunpowder and nuclear weapons? Yes, we are, but to take up the point of your other speaker, yes, there are things like the phalanx, there's the Iron Dome, there's the Patriot system, and they're all uh, defensive weapons that attack military uh, objects like missiles, etc. And there's the German Mantis which shoots down mortar shells. But to give you an example of what we're opposed to is that, say, the German Mantis, when you read the fine detail there, it, it uh, uses the trajectory of the mortar shell and its speed to send a barrage in front of it. But they say in the small print that they could also tell you where the source of the mortar shell came from mm. and that's a very important asset but it could be fired by remote control for instance so we don't want an automatic uh, fire on that without checking the legitimacy of the target so what that's should, one of the problems what should governments do to prevent AI warfare from starting well, they could sign up to the uh, CCW. The CCW is this con convention of certain conventional weapons. It's a committee at the UN with 120 nations, including our country, the UK. And at the moment, they've had uh, two five-day meetings. Christopher's waving meetings his hands, saying, no, no way, no way, I, I assume, Christopher. I'm not being a cynic, but tell me, Professor... You have, yep. you have watched the progress of uh, arms control uh, systems and you yes. know that if the technology is there, somebody is going to make something that you really wouldn't want and it could usurp the, all the time and the consequences of, of uh, arms control agreements. And that, I think, is probably the biggest fear and that is the fact that somebody can develop the systems anywhere. And if somebody develop, develops it, someone will buy it. Professor you're, absolute, you're absolutely right, but nonetheless, um, we've had chemical weapons are not too difficult to make, biological weapons, and we've managed to have an international prohibition in those because it brings the international community together and stigmatises the weapon. OK, Professor Noel Sharkey, thank you thank very you. much for your time today.
How is it that the British Army has got rid of 20,000 personnel three years earlier than it had to? The government's target was to reach 82,000 soldiers by 2018, but the army strength is already below that figure. The Ministry of Defence says it has the manpower it needs at the moment, but it does admit the service faces challenges in recruiting. Actually, just on the subject of, of job losses, uh, we're hearing today at the Atomic Weapons Establishment's planning 500 job losses. Um, the company's announcing that today. Um, grim times, Christopher. It is. I mean, what we're talking about is, if you go back to, um, oh, I don't know, say, say five years ago, um, the army had 100,000 uh, on, its, on its books. Um, it was supposed to get down to about 82,000. It's now 3,380 short of that figure. Why would people, on the Navy is in a similar, similar position, uh, the Navy has a shortfall of what, um, about just about sort of few hundred, probably no more than about 250, but 250 is enough to drive a destroyer. Mm-hmm. So there, then you can see what the consequences of it might be. But it's true also that these were artificial figures in many ways because when they said, look, we've got 120,000, let's say, uh, in, in, in the army and we're going to bring it down to 80,000, uh, people scratched their heads and said, well, you know, we haven't actually got that 120,000. We've, we've got a table that says we should have it. So and you're saying that this up, what seems to be a dramatic loss in jobs is it actually... Is a, it, is a, it is a dramatic loss. It's not as much a dramatic loss in jobs. It's the fact that, the, that people have been leaving the army. People haven't been signing on in, in the army. And when you consider the army, for example, I don't know what the, the average age is about sort of 23, 24 in, 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 in the services general, but in, in the army. It's that age group that you've got to start watching. What are people doing instead of that? They're coming out of the, the universities, the colleges. They're looking for other jobs. We've got high employment in the, in the United Kingdom at the moment. And so, therefore, there's not, not the same sort of reason to, to, to actually join the services. Also, you've lost a war. And that sounds terribly cynical, but people do sign up to go to war. That's part of the whole thing about, certainly, certainly in the army. I think the biggest concern would not be so much the army, would be the navy. It's producing these two, two new aircraft carriers, producing fine new ships, etc. All the figures at the moment suggest it won't have the trained and retraining manpower and woman power, if you like, to, to actually operate these vessels. We're going to have not ghost ships, but a lot of them are going to be quite empty. There's another cynic's point of view, and that is that the, they've, the army has allowed a lot of people to go who wouldn't have otherwise had to go, so they didn't have to pay them because they knew they were going anyway. This week marked the 70th anniversary of forces broadcasting in Germany. Patrick Ede has been delving through the BFBS archives. We began on the 29th of July 1945. And Gordon Cryer made the opening announcement most solemnly, this is the British Forces Network. One of the original forces broadcasters, John McMillan, describing the start of BFN Hamburg. It went on to become BFBS Germany and something of an institution for British forces, their families and the German population. As well as making his name alongside Gene Metcalf on the popular request programme Two-Way Family Favourites, squadron leader Cliff Mitchellmore was also a reporter, recalling here a broadcast describing the Berlin blockade. I'd never seen anything so terrible in all my life. And I talked on and on and on. And at the end of that, the then head of the light programme... Uh, wrote a memo to the head of the British Forces Network. I was then the deputy director, not the director, saying this man must never be let near a microphone again in his life. Uh, That was in 1948. 
Another household name from those halcyon days is Raymond Baxter. A distinguished Spitfire pilot during the war years, he worked in forces broadcasting from 1945 to 1949. A posting uh, came through and I was summoned into the presence of my then CO, who was a very distinguished bomber pilot. I'd been a fighter pilot, so that didn't really help. And he looked at me somewhat coldly and said, uh, got a posting for you here, Baxter, to uh, welfare, broadcasting or something. And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, make that your career. And I said, yes, I hope so. He said, hmm, scarcely a job for a man, I should have thought. As the 1950s began, British troops relocated across northern Germany and BFN Hamburg moved to Cologne. When John Russell visited Berlin in the late 60s, he was surprised to see from the window Hitler's one-time deputy in the neighbouring Spandau jail. Rudolf Hess was still in prison, you know, this enormous prison with one prisoner in it. And you could actually see him shuffling around in his carpet slippers. By the 1970s, the station settled down into a regular pattern of entertainment and information. Presenters such as Andrew Pastuna, Richard Asprey and Nankers the Old Horse became household names across BFG. BFBS was present at the fall of the Berlin Wall and covered German reunification. Since 2000, the map of British forces Germany has continued to change, but BFBS broadcaster and former general manager Germany Dusty Miller says that the station will remain at the heart of the forces community. BFBS, I think through conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan particularly, but also the Balkans, has become a bigger name in, in radio, I think, through all of that. And uh, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, our reputation within the industry itself uh, has been enhanced because of uh, our deployments and that connectivity piece that we've always sort of majored in, really. And that was Dusty Miller ending that report by Patrick Eade. Well, we're joined now by someone who was a BFBS radio listener for many years, Lord Richard former Chief of Defence Staff. Thank you for your time today. Um, when did you serve in Germany and what were your memories of BFBS Radio? Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be back on BFBS Radio. I, I used to um, be persuaded on a number of times when I was based there. I mean, where didn't we serve? But um, Berlin was one, Gutterslow, uh, Minden, um, obviously later on JHQ, Rheindalen, Osnabrück, um, and I have to say, we, my family and I, we all always thoroughly enjoyed our postings to Germany. As a, as a listener and a user, how beneficial was it for the forces community? Well, look, when I first went there in 1978, um, we didn't have um, BFBS television. Um, all we had was the radio. So uh, it was that or nothing, um, and it was jolly good. It was not only connecting us back to the UK and the news there, but obviously it enhanced the, um, the, the, the sort of consensus within the BFG community and told us what was going on and, you know, where the skiing was, where the sailing mm. was, and all the things that I associate with what was a very good lifestyle on the whole. Christopher? Well, just before the war came down, General... Um, I got some information that uh, the East German intelligence people used to listen to SITREP uh, every week. And the reason they used to listen to it uh, from Germany was that they believed they were getting a briefing on what largely the army was all about and what their ambitions were. And there's a professor of politics, who you probably know, Margot Light, at London School of Economics, and she was uh, having lunch with uh, a Stasi uh, member in East Germany, 
And he said, "Cause you're a spy, aren't you? We heard you on BFBS. Well, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, we forget that that era was at the, still the height of the Cold War. I mean, I was in Berlin. Uh, we, well, we left Berlin just as the wall, uh, well, just before the wall was come, came down. And I can tell you, and you'll remember this, Christopher, none of us had a clue what was about to happen. Uh, and we took our security and, you know, the spy threat and all that sort of thing very seriously indeed. I mean, it was a different era, uh, and it's very nostalgic as I now, with you, look back on it. Mm, do you have any particular broadcast or experience that you remember? Oh, gosh, that's a good one. Well, I remember when I was a brigade commander in Osnabrück, one of your colleagues asking me to speak, and I didn't um, rather stupidly check what the subject matter was. Um, and uh, I... Shall we put it... And everyone, Sounds unlike you. Uh, yeah, uh, I learned my lesson. I, uh, so who was the reporter? Way, what, not very well. Who was the reporter? Was some family thing, but I should have known more about My wife gave me a real grief. <laughs> You didn't say anything too risque, did you, then? No, not too risque. That came later. It's very kind of you to, to spend some time with us today, because I know you're on your holidays, and we know you for your reading list that you used to issue every year as CDS, um, as the Chief of General uh, Defence Staff. I understand you're writing your own your number two autobiography. Is that right? No. I, uh, <laughs> you I sure? Where that's come from? Really? People trying to persuade me to, but uh, I can tell you, uh, writing that book was one of the most difficult things I've done. So mm. it's not going to happen in a short while, but if ever. But I, I am reviewing for for someone uh, a chap called Barney Campbell. I don't know if that's his real name. He's written a book called Rain, um, which is about his time as a young officer with his soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, and it really is as good an account, uh, an authentic account of the life at the low tactical level that I've right. ever read. So when that comes out, I would be recommending that to everyone. Lord Richards, thanks you very much for your time and for the tip. Um, and thanks uh, for speaking to us today. And Patrick Eade's special feature, which looks back over 70 years of forces broadcasting in Germany, is on BFBS Radio 2 during Dusty Miller's show on Saturday morning. Or you can hear it on Forces Life on Sunday. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for your company. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.